In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Bruno Squawk about all things Ethereum, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and a lot more. I'll see you in a sec. Hey, and welcome back to episode 31 of Free the Geek FM. I'm Matthew Setter, your host, ethical hacker, secure software developer, trainer, podcaster, technical writer, and all those other good things. In this episode, as I said before the intro music, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to my mate, what would you say, somewhat of a writing mentor from the SitePoint days, an all-around good bloke, Mr. Bruno Squawk, about Ethereum, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and all that good stuff. To be honest, I say all that good stuff because I really know next to nothing about them. I know, software developer, all those sorts of things, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies are all the rage at the moment, and I don't know, I'm going to say it, I don't know squat about them. Well, I actually know more than I used to, before I talked to Bruno, that is. But to be honest, it's just something that I kind of, um, I, I guess as you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I'm a smidge over 40, not that that's a Priya, or a disqualifier, I should say. I'm a dad with two kids, happily married, freelance developer and all those good things that I mentioned. And it's kind of like, you, you kind of get the new shiny, or at least what you can see is the new shiny, and you kind of think, well, it seems interesting, but I have to find time. And it's kind of like a cup after a while, right? To put something more in, you need to take something out. And I, I guess, perhaps if I'm honest or whatnot, that I just am not sure kind of what to take out so that I could put something else in. If you don't have kids, don't worry. It kind of When you don't, it always seems like you can just always find more time when you do and they kind of get up somewhere between 5.30 and 7 in the morning and you're not really kind of finished till they're asleep in bed at whatever time of, of day they're, they're in bed. Yeah, I'm just going to say you can find... It's amazing how limits can appear. It's also amazing, just on that point, how you can become so much more efficient at what you do do. But that's going rather off onto a segue, or rather onto a tangent that I'm not going to follow. It's a really interesting chat. I got to know so much about blockchain and all the other sort of parts and pieces that go along with it. If you're interested in learning about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Litecoin, all the other coins, whether you feel that the mainstream media is just sort of grabbing the bit that makes for easy headlines and not actually touching the, the real juice, the real meat, as it were, of what cryptocurrencies are about, then this fireside chat is one for you. I hope that you can learn more about it, see the potential in it, and perhaps jump on in if you feel that it's something for you. Oh, and one more thing, if you want to know anything more about this episode, go to freethegeek.fm forward slash episode forward slash episode hyphen zero zero three one, and you'll find all the links and more information and descriptions and so forth. If you want to find anything more about the show, go to freethegeek.fm. And as always, if you have any other questions, tweet me any given time. I'm at freeingthegeek on Twitter, and I'll see you after the show. Well, actually, that makes for a good start of a conversation, because um, I honestly know so very, very little about cryptocurrencies and, and all that. I was having a look through uh, bitfalls.com to give myself a bit of a, a, a rapid intro. Well, how how ever did you get into it? Because you seem really super passionate about it all. Um, how I got into it? I I was um, I think it was 
four years now that I heard about Bitcoin and wasn't really impressed because I didn't see the long-term use of it like like many others. Um, I, I didn't I, I wasn't I wasn't able to think in a speculative way back then still. Hmm. So I did so I never kind of felt like I should invest, which was retroactively like a stupid decision. Um, but then a year later, uh, Ethereum popped up with promises of a world computer. And when I read the white paper and I read their plans, then I got in um, like <laughs> investment wise. Mm-hmm. Because um, are you familiar with the ICO craze? No. Of, so um, in in cryptocurrencies, Ethereum made this um, half awesome, half terrible thing possible, where people can now gather funds for their projects uh, through an unregulated market uh, from uncredited investors in the form of cryptocurrencies and. Ethereum is actually a platform, not a cryptocurrency, on which you can develop other projects. It's um, it's kind of a a virtual machine which executes code, uh, which is written in programs called smart contracts, mm-hmm. and you can use those to create your own tokens, like uh, your own custom cryptocurrencies, loyalty points, what what have you. And many companies use those as a means to kind of collect contributions, collect investments from people. So, for example, if I want to start a project that's going to, for example, um, be for uh, renting uh, real estate on the blockchain. Um, This is a realistic use case because you kind of want to have an immutable ledger, an immutable set of data that you can refer to that's globally secured through the blockchain yeah um and you can also use that platform as a kind of almost free infrastructure for your project so imagine if for example you had an apartment that you wanted to rent out often but you're not around to give the key to the tenant and you kind of don't want to leave it under the doormat or at a neighbor's place Mm -hmm. yeah um, you could potentially have a smart lock with a code, but that code could be stolen. It could be passed on to someone else. It could leak. Um, there's a little bit of a security risk involved. Now, with cryptocurrencies, you can have a custom token made on Ethereum, which is unique, which is unfalsifiable, which is mathematically provable and all automatic. And all the user, the tenant, has to do is just bring his phone close to your smart lock, which can read this token and unlock the door and nobody else can have this token there's only one copy of it in the world and you can only have it if you have that person's device and um that's kind of one use case so if i if i had a company which did this um i would be able to for example um issue these types of tokens in the order of millions and people could send me their ethereum or bitcoin and i would give them a certain number of those tokens in return and that's kind of how this crowdfunding works these days you basically pre-sell a part of your company or a product of your company for that cryptocurrency you use the cryptocurrency to fund further development and the people who invested basically get a discounted final product in a way um so yeah, that's that's basically what Ethereum is. It's it's a world computer that um, that can execute this logic, this this smart stuff, this uh, 
it's programmable money basically it's money it's it's assets that can react to certain inputs or certain triggers that you program into their into their code and that's that's what i saw promise in in 2014 when they promised it in the white paper and that's what i decided to invest in okay so you've got a lot invested in that since uh, since that time or uh, without well, kind of giving too much away yeah i it, back then it, it wasn't it wasn't a big amount um, if i had more to invest back then i probably would have mm-hmm. but i i wasn't um, I didn't have that much disposable income, so it wasn't anything astronomical. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I basically, the, the technology, so Ethereum itself was an ICO, basically. You were contributing and getting Ether in return. And Ether at that point didn't have any value. So you were basically hoping it would find value. Mm-hmm. And it did, but it took years. So uh, for for almost two Two and a half years, I, I didn't even touch it. Um, I kept working at SitePoint and doing all the other stuff. Um, I only started developing on Ethereum at the beginning of this year, and that's when I got really into it. So basically, I just let my investments sit there and just ate and just um, basically appreciate in value, mm-hmm. which, was, which ended up being a very good decision. Um, yeah. And then, like a few months ago, uh, it was kind of excitement changed direction, and um, I'm I'm now back to a very very occasional, occasion not even part time but occasional time base with them. So I have time to focus full time on my on my crypto stuff. Okay, um, I'll come back to that in a second. Regarding the point about you know you, you said you could create a unique. unique token based on the user's device such as a uh, smartphone or whatever is there any is there any way at all of say based on the device you could clone that token or recreate it no 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 it's not it's not based on the device Uh, Ah, every every user has their own like uh, there are two parts to every account uh, so to speak Uh in any chain uh, whether it be bitcoin or ethereum or whatever so there's a public key and private key just like with the uh, secure shell access just mm-hmm. like with SSH you have the or you, you have your RSA keys or what have you you have a public key and a private key for your server yeah so it's, it's the exact same thing here um, your public key is actually what your address is derived from and your address is kind of like a uh, email inbox which everybody can read but your private key is your password with which only you can send replies so you basically have, an, have a public inbox, uh, so everybody can see the addresses balance, uh-huh. and everybody sees how many tokens you have and how many of which tokens you have. Mm-hmm. But only you can spend it because only you have the private key. And I can make a token on Ethereum, which I can then send to a user's Ethereum address, and that token will be on his address but only he will be able to spend it or uh, send it onward and so on. And I, as the owner of the token, can also move it from his address to elsewhere or destroy it when when we're done using it and so on. Um, It's basically just a mathematical formula that's sitting on your address that's Mm -hmm. encrypted with that key and that only you have the ability to prove that is uh, irrevocably yours. Um, It's just basically, it's, it's almost identical to just 
securely logging into a server. Only this time you're not logging into a server, you're kind of logging into your wallet, which proves certain things that you claim you own or can do. Um, it's basically just, just uh, permissions, but on an asset base, on an asset mm -hmm. basis. So you have permissions for various assets. So, so I guess in, in short, that's more verifiable than the current financial system. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I guess another question is that, because this is just coming as, as an outsider's perspective, in recent news articles, I've seen sort of things about like, like the, a, a drop in value, but then a projection for like an increase in value mid next year or something. Is this just like a normal fluctuation or more like a beat up from, from news organizations? Oh, that's, um, well, there's, there's a lot of factors there, but almost none of the value that's, all, almost none of the value fluctuations that happen in the crypto world are based on actual demand. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is that no blockchain has found its true use yet. I mean, Ethereum does have a use, but it's not ready yet. It's very alpha, and it actually comes in three stages, uh, only one of which is ready right now. Mm -hmm. um, Ethereum itself is like the CPU of a world computer. It has the Ethereum virtual machine, which runs on these uh, Ethereum software nodes that you can deploy on your computer. And all these nodes are connected like a, like a BitTorrent network across the world. Yeah. And when you send a smart contract, an Ethereum program into the network, that code gets executed on everyone's machine and you pay for that execution cost in uh, gas, which is represented as, as Ether. Uh, there, there's some semi-complex calculations going into that. For example, uh, summing two numbers together costs three gas, um, multiplying them costs five gas, and your compiler will calculate this for you and estimate the gas cost that you need to pay and so on and so forth. But basically, um, I have an article on bitfalls.com which explains how gas is calculated in a, in a kind of civilian-friendly manner, so that might be a good read. But essentially, you're paying these miners, these people who are running your, uh, the Ethereum nodes to execute your code. And that's only part one, executing this logic, executing the code that you're sending to Ethereum. Part two is the Whisper protocol, which allows for kind of sending messages back and forth through the, through this decentralized system so that you don't have to commit them to the blockchain. And if you don't have to do that, you don't have to pay transactions or wait for confirmation time. So you have kind of this decentralized messaging system that you can use to chat with anyone in the world without relying on DNS and centralized uh, service providers. So that's, that's another element. And a third element is the Swarm protocol, which is basically like the hard drive of this world computer. Uh, the Swarm protocol is a new file system protocol, which you can use to host files in a decentralized way, like just like with BitTorrent, where files are distributed on, on many millions of computers worldwide. Uh, the same thing happens here, where files are, are distributed worldwide, only they also tie into this Ethereum protocol. So now you have a decentralized world computer on which you can host your website and uh, read it from anyone without relying on DNS because you're using, you, you're using these swarm addresses which are based on hashes of files instead of DNS addresses for resolving into IP addresses. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you, we basic, we're basically building this decentralized internet that's resistant to... Uh, to, to, to censorship and to, to slowdowns and to blockage and so on. So basically just even, even, even if they 
kind of ban ISPs or whatever. We can just mesh it up together, and as long as our nodes can connect to one another somehow, even through other nodes, we we still have this decentralized internet up and up and running, and and it's all still working. But that's kind of, I mean, it's it's maybe at at ten percent of the full realization, the whole project. So it's it's ways off, and that's where the uh, prediction for a value rise is coming from, because there's so many upgrades to do. Um, but as far as the the actual price fluctuations in Bitcoin or in, in some of the mainstream cryptocurrencies are concerned. Uh, a lot of it has to do with just FUD and, and hype. So mm -hmm. basically just the media attacking uh, the technology or praising it. Um, and a whole lot of it has to do with actual price manipulation because the people who had the who had some Bitcoin early on and it was fairly easy to get back then. It was you had you had these faucet sites where you just clicked a button and you got five Bitcoin out of it if you solved the captcha. Um, and uh, there are people now who have tens of thousands of Bitcoin in their accounts and they can just with a click of a button they can just move a market up and down and that's where these price increases basically come from. It's going to be right now we're in a little boat that's being kind of thrown about by waves and we yeah. have to upgrade to uh, to a ferry. Uh, to become immune to these waves, uh, and it's going to take a while. I like the use of metaphor. Um, to to be honest, I'm, I appreciate the the clarification because I honestly thought, like as I said, I haven't really looked into it. I honestly thought it was it was more just about like a a, a, new, a newer currency, and that was where the point stopped. Because all I was sort of hearing was sort of different Bitcoin exchanges and, and value rises and so on, and I just sort of thought it was like a one to one. Like a, like a, just a newer form of a currency, like a euro or a US dollar or something. But how you describe it in in much greater detail makes it much more interesting than uh, I'd ever appreciated. Oh yeah, I mean to be clear, uh, there are some cryptocurrencies which have this uh, one one purpose to replace fiat currency, and that is their only purpose. So Bitcoin is one of those. You can't really code on it. You can't really send it any any complex code. There are some simple scripting uh, commands that you can issue, but that doesn't do much. And it's closer to assembly than anything readable, so it's really, really uncomfortable to code in. Um, and so Bitcoin and, and other, other currencies like Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash or uh, Vertcoin lately or anonymous ones like Zcash or Monero, because it's important to, to note that Bitcoin is, is uh, anonymous, but it's not private. Um, so is Litecoin, so is Ether, so is uh, most of them are anonymous but not private, which means that nobody knows who owns an address unless the owner slips up and lets everybody know on Twitter or something. Mm -hmm. um, but all the transactions are, are entirely visible and inspectable and you can follow the flow of money from any address to any address. And this is unchangeable, it's immutable, it's stored forever in the blockchain. So once you slip up, once somebody kind of connects your identity to an address, that's it. Everybody knows all the transactions stemming from that address mm -hmm. um, until the end of time. So you might as well abandon it if, if privacy is important. Um, w the, the good thing is that uh, because of mathematics, anybody can generate an infinity of addresses for them and it's very easy to change them. It's very easy to just, just uh, you know, like use a new address for every transaction that you're, that you're doing. Yeah. Um, but then there's the problem of technology and fees. For example, just a simple transfer of a quarter uh, 
from from one address to another in Bitcoin right now costs uh, twenty to sixty dollars because of a high, because of a technological limitation. So that's not really even viable as a currency anymore. Um, but yeah, in, in general, what you hear about in the news is the financial aspect of these cryptocurrencies, and barely anyone is paying attention to the technological revolution that's coming and the world computer that we're building, and that's going to be a very fun time when people see what happened. It's like the the era of email, like um, when people were kind of like, "What is this? Why would I ever write a message? Like, what is <laughs> what? What? How? How do I remember this? Something at something dot something. What? This is stupid." And then all of a sudden, everybody has email. The, this is kind of what I'm what I'm expecting to happen here. Okay, what is it? Is it progressively what becomes more mainstream, more stabilized, more fleshed out? Yeah, like you know, like when you use Facebook or something, everybody yeah. uses Facebook, and then uh, nobody is actually aware that they're actually manipulating a MySQL database behind the scenes. Um, that's kind of what we're heading to, towards. Uh, we're going to have a system where everybody, which everybody's using, but nobody's aware that they're using the blockchain underneath it. And when that happens, that that's when we'll have true mainstream adoption, and that's when the technology will become even more irreplaceable than it is today. Okay, that that sounds in a way, as you said, to use that metaphor, or like um, Apple selling Unix or something, but no one has a clue because it's just, it's my phone. I don't care yeah. sort of what's beneath it. It's just, I can do these things and that's all I care about. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's it. Um, I was, on, on a, to keep on the, like the, the Bitcoin and so forth topic for just a bit longer, um, I was listening to uh, Security Now, a, a US podcast, and it was talking about, uh, is, is it bit mining or Bitcoin mining or so forth going on? Um in using what was it i'm just trying to remember where it sort of talked about uh, something like was it two hundred thousand websites using javascript or something to... oh right yeah 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 um we actually tried this on bitfalls uh, -huh. uh we had a it's just a script like so monero is this anonymous uh and private cryptocurrency which basically masks transactions so you can't follow them along the even though the, the blockchain is public, you can't find the individual transactions mm -hmm. because they're kind of bundled up together and encrypted and hashed and whatever. So it's it's not easy to kind of follow the trail. Um, it's actually kind of technically impossible right now. Um, and that's that's why it has great potential for, for privacy, but also kind of uh, invites scrutiny from regulators and governments and so on. But um, basically that's the cryptocurrency that everybody's mining with these JavaScript miners. And the way it works is uh, when you're mining a cryptocurrency, your computer is basically uh, kind of taking the, the transaction. There, there's in, in blockchain, there's um, when you're sending transactions, there's a certain number of them that can fit into one block. Mm -hmm. And uh, once a block is full, and that's an arbitrary limit of uh, a certain amount of transactions or megabytes or whatever, depending on the blockchain, once it's full, it has to be verified. And once it's verified, it has to be stored in the blockchain and another block is then built on top of it and so on and so forth. And for a block to be valid, it has to contain the hash of the previous block and it has to contain the hash of all the transactions that go into it. And then when you hash all that together, the hash of that block 
in order for it to be valid, has to start with a certain number of zeros. That's that's the case in Bitcoin, for example. And uh, if you if you keep hashing a certain thing, you always get the same hash out of it um, for as long as you're hashing it unchanged. So if you change a little bit of information in that original set of data, then the hash will completely change. Now what your computer is doing, it's it's adding random bits of information to the to the existing information. Uh, and rehashing and rehashing and rehashing and doing that again, doing that again, and trying to basically guess a random bit of information, which when added to the original set, produces a hash that matches these certain conditions. So a specific number of zeros at the, at the start. And that's what mining is basically, just guessing until a number is reached, until a number or a bit of data is reached, which produces a hash that looks like it's supposed to look. And when that happens, the block is considered valid. Now, uh, it's very difficult for individual computers to, to do this mining because they're very weak. They have very few guesses per minute. And since mining is not a collaborative effort, it's competitive. It's about who finds the block first. Mm -hmm. Then simple computers don't have a chance. And the way around that was with, uh, they invented this thing called, called pool mining, where um, several computers, where a simple computer can, can kind of try these guesses, but sends them into this big pool, which serves as just one miner. So basically, it's just a lot of computers guessing for one. They're helping out with their additional guess attempts. And when this mega computer, this, this one big miner, which takes these guesses from everybody else, uh, guesses a block, so verifies it, and every, every guessed block results in produced new coins. That's where new Bitcoins come from. So when you when you validate a block, new Bitcoins are created out of thin air and given to the miner who actually succeeded. In this case, it's that, that one pool which accepts these guesses from other computers. And then they distribute the reward among all the others who submitted these guesses. And everybody gets a little, little bit of tiny little bit of cryptocurrency in return. So what these, what these JavaScript miners do is basically they force your browser to do these guesses. And then these guesses are getting sent to this one pool miner. And when this pool miner guesses a block successfully, it rewards these guessing miners um, with a little bit of cryptocurrency that uh, this guessing resulted in. So in this case, it's Monero. Monero is getting manufactured, and then you get a chunk of Monero every time uh, there's a successful guess. This is kind of, uh, this happens at a predictable rate, and you get like a little super tiny amount of Monero for every for every visitor that, that keeps your site open. Now, the um, the problem is that at very low visit counts, that's that's truly like uh, insignificant. There, there's really nothing, um, nothing to earn, really, it's 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 not worth it. So you need a lot of users mm. uh, keeping their browsers open a lot of the time. And that can really eat up your battery and can heat up your laptop because it's basically just spinning your, your CPU like crazy. Um, and in many cases, if, if the miner was injected into the site without the site owners knowing it, then uh, the hackers will usually not even throttle the miner because the miner has some settings which can say like, okay, mine at 20% of the CPU or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if, it's, if it was a hack, then the hacker will just say, okay, go for 100%. And the, the computer will just grind to a, to, a, 
to a halt and mine as much as it can before it shuts down, burns out or whatever. And that's where the harm comes from because people don't disclose that they have these miners and, and oftentimes they don't even know. Um, and so it, it just kind of destroys their experience, their browsing experience and their computer and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, that uh, that links to another point. I was reading stories about how the, the power consumption of, of all the mining was equivalent to Ireland or something like this, or, or a series of small countries. Yeah, there's there's a lot of those numbers being thrown around now, and all of them are, are close to reality, but no one can actually say with certainty um, how much that is. But it is an abysmal amount of power, and it's a huge waste. Um, one... one uh, one way to look at it from a positive angle is mm. even if um, because because people are so greedy and they want to get in on this game, many new miners keep entering the space mm -hmm. and investing in this hardware and investing in uh, just basically infrastructure to to get this power needed to mine. Now um, it's it's really hard to get that much power these days. Like you have to have a a power plant or a renewable source of energy and uh, in addition to your fossil fuels and so on. So uh, it actually is kind of driving um, innovation in the renew renewable, renewable energy sector, kind of, in a way. Mm. Um, but uh, so what, what I see as positive in all this is that even if cryptocurrencies completely implode, especially the monetary ones that are only proof-of-work based, so this, this expensive electricity-powered mining, um, even if they implode and get to zero value, we'll basically be left with a lot of unused infrastructure of renewable energy, which is great. Um, but uh, the only way for this to remain sustainable is for them to change the mining type. Uh, and there's kind of this other approach. So this, this mining that takes electricity, that's guessing a lot of numbers, is called proof of work because your machine by submitting those guesses proves that it worked really hard to try those guesses mm. um, and there's another type called proof of stake where you actually uh, submit some of your already owned cryptocurrency off that blockchain so for example in ethereum that's ether in bitcoin that's bitcoin and so on you submit it into the system and you basically say to the machine all right, here's my X amount of Bitcoin. And I swear that my machine is going to correctly process the transactions coming through it from now on until, I don't know, six months from now. Mm. And if others who are also doing this uh, and are rechecking my work and are also checking their own transactions claim that I did something wrong, then I accept that I will lose this stake that I'm putting into the system. So basically, you're just uh, swearing on your investment that you'll do good by the system. And um, this is kind of this, this. There's a point of contention here where people say that the rich will get richer uh, because the more you have, the more the more you can stake, and the more you can stake, the more returns you get because every transaction in any blockchain has a transaction fee, and the people who verify those transactions, these miners, they get those fees. That's the way we reward them for for their mining. Otherwise, it'd be just expenses. And um, so the way to solve this is exactly like Ethereum did. So you start off with proof of work where you kind of mine for electricity. And this uh, makes sure that the distribution is 
well, if not even, then at least balanced in a way that everybody can get some Ethereum, some Ether. And then you can just basically stake your Ether and get returns, kind of like dividends on it for participating in the system. The big advantage here is that you don't need huge power facilities anymore. You can stake from your phone, you can stake from your webcam, you can stake from your Raspberry Pi, you can stake from anything you want. And we have this. This leads to a, to a, to an insanely decentralized system that is completely indestructible, and that's kind of the the great appeal of of long term holding of Ethereum because it's going to to kind of switch to this more efficient system, which can I mean imagine right now 80% of Bitcoin is mined in China. Now imagine if China decided overnight that mining cryptocurrency is illegal. That's mm. That's basically a, a nail in the coffin of Bitcoin, and it would cripple it severely. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- these these problems, these centralization problems, Bitcoin is severely centralized uh, infrastructure-wise. I have a I have a post on on Bitfalls where there's uh, links to a study, which shows that 60% of all Bitcoin transactions in the world ever go through just three major ISPs. So just three major ISPs are enough to just do deep packet inspection of, uh, of, of their, their data coming through. Mm-hmm. If they identify peer-to-peer financial traffic in the form of Bitcoin, they could just block it and that's it. Um, there's, there's huge problems infrastructure-wise. And this is all due to the unavailability of nodes, which need to be geographically close to each other to reduce latency. Because when mining... You kind of rely on this lack of latency, so you can, so your nodes can exchange data really quickly and mine together, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's basically just a whole lot of problems to be solved, and a lot of them are solved by this more efficient uh, type of um, mining. It's not exactly mining, but you know, staking. Yeah. Okay. Um, that all honestly sounds really fascinating. I. I... I, I guess I couldn't ask for ask for a, a clearer description of it all. At least for, you know the com, the complete beginner. Um, getting on to, to bitfalls.com. So did you start that? What did you say? What, what two odd years ago? Or because it looks like just looking at it here, it looks quite well fleshed out. Um, thanks. Yeah, but it it actually existed as a as a blog for years. Um, it, the, the name is purely a coincidence. It mm. was a ridiculous coincidence. Um, I've had it as a blog for years, and then it kind of stagnated as I got busier and busier. Mm-hmm. And then as I got really deep into cryptocurrency, I, I figured I always wanted to have some kind of a site point-like site for crypto Yeah. that isn't just another buzz, BuzzFeed of crypto, you know, like... Yeah, the latest... Telegram. They're just their articles are basically just like uh, Bitcoin falls a thousand dollars, but where can it go next? And then two hours later, is Bitcoin rises a thousand dollars? Is a new all-time high in sight? I don't want a site of of that type. I wanted a a site point type uh, site which would explain technical things in a user-friendly manner, which would help bring the technology to the mainstream. I don't want to talk about prices. I don't want to talk about speculation. I don't want to talk about day trading. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to focus on the greed part. I want mm. people to understand the technology, um, maybe train new blockchain developers, and just get this 
get this uh, ship sailing so we can we can get underway sooner mm-hmm. um, so I was thinking like what what could I call my site I was looking at domains and then I, and then I remembered I actually have a domain um, that would kind of match this context and being a Bitcoin skeptic um, it actually does kind of match so I, I just decided to revamp the blog into Bitfalls and um, I found some authors pretty much immediately because mm-hmm. the, 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 the ecosystem is actually quite alive. Many people think uh, not a lot of people deal with cryptocurrencies, especially not with development. But it's actually, that's actually not true. It's just that many of us are kind of uh, under the radar because of this great unknown from the, mm-hmm. from the governments and from the regulatory bodies and so on because nobody knows where it's going and who's planning what. So just basically identifying yourself as a crypto enthusiast could kind of incriminate you later on if governments decide tomorrow that it's all illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of a lot of the the meetings, a lot of the contacts are found in person on various meetups and conferences, and okay. that's when you realize that there's actually a lot of people interested in this, and a lot of people want to both write and develop and read and so on. So uh, I guess that sort of answers that, that next question. Um, so what you say, you've found a lot of people just directly in person and just asked if they're interested in contributing and like, like-minded people getting together and, and sharing knowledge and content and so forth. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, nobody wants to share knowledge for free these days. Um, almost nobody. So I do pay all authors. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was lucky enough for my initial investment in Ether to kind of allow me to do this now. Uh-huh. Um, and and we do have some ads that help with this. Uh, yep. So I, I guess, yeah, I can I can maintain this for a while. And I'm hoping just that the quality of the posts will drive more people to the site, which would make it kind of self-sustainable. Um, but yeah, I basically just approach people and and ask if anybody has some knowledge to share. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of things to say, but don't have the willpower or the or the finances or the knowledge or just the interest to to maintain a blog or a site. And so I, I kind of try to give them a neutral outlet uh, on which to, to to kind of just spread knowledge in an objective way. Okay. Um, all right. So we're just just cutting. I think we're about sort of halfway ish or around about thirty five minutes in. Yep. Um, did you want to cover anything about like that time at SitePoint more specifically, or we'll just leave that for some other time? Um, well, that's that's. I don't know what what specifically did you did you have in mind? Um, I was sort of curious, partly from the time as um, you know, sort of partly working as a developer, partly as as tech writer and stuff. Okay, here's it. I'll come at it a different way. Um, when I met with people at OwnCloud, before I sort of started doing their, like being their doc lead there, and when I talked to some other people who sort of initially approached me directly, when they, it occurred to the point where they'd say, so you're a developer and you actually enjoy communicating. And there was always this sense of suspicion of like, uh-huh, like, or they would say specifically, my devs just like, if you could just leave them alone to do their thing, they would be perfectly happy. The second I asked them to talk, oh no, that's a problem. And so I'm just sort of curious as, you know, because you were the, um, the editor of the PHP channel, what it was like 
getting develop well finding developers who are willing to talk um and how you could sort of get them to talk or, or write in a in a coherent and a, and a logical way given at least given that stereotype right yeah that's a that's a that's a good question yeah um i was uh, i actually found that a lot of developers have a lot to say if mm-hmm. you can hit the note where you kind of trigger them into saying things. Um, if if you even if you meet this introverted legendary developer at any kind of conference or meetup or whatever in person, um, it is true that they'll usually be very quiet and reserved and uh, just keep to themselves and just wish they'd rather be at home or something. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of manage to to hit the note where they're an expert or have a firm opinion, they will be able to go on for hours about it. And that's kind of what I was going for with the developers in that I was encouraging them to, uh, I, I never pushed any topics on anyone. It was always uh, open submission. Uh, so anybody who felt passionate about anything could submit that idea. And that's, I, I think that's what worked out the best there. Because I encourage people to, many people like, if I, when I asked them, would you like to write for us and, and we'll pay you and stuff, they would say like almost 95% of the time, the answer was, I can't write, which is a lie. Everybody mm-hmm. can write. And as, as far as structure, grammar and so on is concerned, I'm there to help with that. I'm there to help with the flow, and I'm there as an editor to help with the with the structure and with making it m- more interesting than than someone who's enthusiastic about the topic can present it. And uh, I think just letting them. I, I always encourage them to kind of. They they would tell me I don't I don't have anything to write about. Uh, that would also be a common excuse. And I would say just okay. What was the last thing you had to build for your job? And they would tell me something like I had to build a, I don't know, calendar recalculation component for a symphony site which relied on, I don't know, phases of the moon. And I said, good, write about it. Mm-hmm. And every single, like, like, the, like the saying goes, like every single person you me- ever meet will know something you don't. So that, that's kind of what I, what I try to encourage. Um, just even if it was slightly repetitive or maybe redundant in that nobody, almost nobody would use the code that was written in the article. I tried to make sure that the person who wrote the article didn't write it purely from a financial standpoint, but actually because they learned something new in that process and they presented it to the audience so that the, the audience could also reach some new conclusions from it. And what I found that was that actually a lot of developers were really interested in writing in this way and they all wanted to share something new they learned and something they 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 thought that would maybe be useful to someone else Mm -hmm. Uh, just essentially something they wished someone else had told them before they started and that's that's what it came down to just just telling people that that stuff is possible that it didn't know was possible and uh preventing them from just having to troll to to docs and just uh, scratching their head for a while. And a lot of developers were actually very interested in that. Yeah, well, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? You sit there and you can sort of pound your head against the keyboard or the wall for ages and then click or you just happen to find an article or something 
that uh, that, that sums up or, or, or simplifies exactly what you needed to do, and it's it's priceless. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was something else in there that I I had, and it's it's slipped straight from one thought out the other ear. So hopefully, hopefully, I'll remember it in a sec. Um, so, how long were you, how long were you there for in that role? Just curiously, as as an editor. Yeah, I think it was uh, three or four years. Um, three, three, I think. I think it was three years, three or four years, something like that. I, I know I started as a, as an author for the first like six or eight months or so, mm-hmm. and and I didn't get asked to be an editor for for that entire period. So I, I'm not sure when that exactly happened, mm-hmm. but I think it was three or four years of, of editing. Actually, actually, let me just check real quick. Um, I wrote a post as soon as I came on board to introduce myself, um, which was like really stupidly titled. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was my first lesson, like watch the titles. Um, yeah, it was October 1st, 2013. Um, so it was, it was October, September, September, October, uh, 2013. So it's four years, four years and change that I'm an editor. So almost five years at SitePoint in some capacity. Jesus, that went by fast. <laughs> I was going to say five years. Wow. It's not a short time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh man, I feel old now. <laughs> Do you have kids? No. Uh, have kids, you'll feel even older. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure I want I want that right now. Yeah. I'm just, just throwing it out there. Yeah. I figure I'm over forty, I have kids, so I can just I can throw out the silly jokes and say, Hey, don't I have the, the get out of jail free card? Oh right. Yeah. Um But you've got a is it you've got a masters in, in English, is that is that right? Yeah, that is that is correct. In English and computer science, yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, because your writing was always better than mine. Um. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. I, I mean, I was uh, actually, I actually didn't, to be honest, I didn't learn any of it in, in college, almost any of it hmm. in university. I learned almost all of it from video games throughout my childhood because that was the golden age of offline games and uh, in-depth RPGs. And there were no kids who couldn't spell online from which you could learn the wrong things. Mm-hmm. It was all just story-based, and all the stories back then had to be really good and really proofread, like, like mm. to bits. And that was some really proper English then in, the, in those writings. And mm. I learned everything I knew from those. And then there was all this RPG gaming. Like I read mm. so many books for RPG games, both tabletop and, and computer games. And all of that was just perfection just a little li- literal perfection that you couldn't really learn anything wrong from so that helped a whole lot that's really fascinating actually i had no idea yeah it's, it's almost like like people think like um because I, I i i can i can speak i can understand i can i can't really speak it anymore i can understand german uh-huh. and and people were always curious uh like why why can I why can I speak and understand German if I only uh, if I only learned it for two years in high school, and again same thing I like just just TV just TV I was just I was watching just this Austrian this bad Austrian television, 
when I was growing up, I, I would come home from school and there was mm. Tom Turbo online, uh, uh, Tom Turbo on the TV and and other similar confetti TV and nonsense. Mm. And I, I basically learned German from TV just like I learned English from, from games and books. And um, and that's that's just that's just yeah, that's where it comes from. That is honestly really fascinating. Um, and on the point of Austrians, they have a they have a funky, wicked accent. Yeah, they, they, they well, the, their TV doesn't. They they do in person, like especially if you go with the, with the Hessish people. There, that's mm. that's pretty insane. Um, but it, I mean, who am I to speak there? It's I, Croats are are far worse than this. Like there's a. <laughs> Like if you if you speak to a to a Croat up north in Croatia, mm. and then to one down south, like just it's just five hundred kilometers mm-hmm. of geographical distance, yep. those two people literally cannot understand each other. There are no there, there's not even some overlap in words which which they could share. It's it is so different that it's it's easier to understand Hungarian and Slovenian up here in the north than it is to understand a fellow Croat from the South, literally. Right. I, I always thought it was like the Germans and the English. Um, yeah. yeah, that's... that's yeah, that's, that's kind of... I mean, the difference is, is, is that big, yeah. yeah. But that's because, because the, the South was kind of under Italian rule for, for a long time, and the North was under German and Hungarian rule for a long time, so the right. languages diverged and... Uh, there's you know like there's not a single original word in creation and everything is taken from other languages so that's why there's so much difference there you go okay hmm well there's an interesting language lesson um yeah anyway on on that note um i guess we're sort of around about at time is there anything that you'd like to plug like do you want to plug the site or an upcoming talk or a new project um well, there's a lot of upcoming projects, but nothing I can I can plug just yet. I would like to, uh, yes, please do visit bitfiles.com and read our posts and submit our ideas if if you want to publish. But more more than that, um, do there's there's two acronyms, three acronyms that you need to know before getting into cryptocurrency, and which can save you a whole lot of money. Uh, one is FUD, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and that's what many people will try to spread when they want to lower the price of a cryptocurrency, so that they can buy it from you cheaper when you start panic selling. So mm-hmm. don't panic sell is lesson number one. Lesson number two is FOMO, fear of missing out. Don't panic buy. If you see something rising very quickly. It's likely the result of a pump and dump scheme, which is basically uh, the process of putting a lot of buy orders on an exchange, so creating a lot of artificial demand for a cryptocurrency and basically forcing its price up. People do this because they want to sell something they bought cheaper. They want to sell at a higher price. Mm -hmm. And those people who buy at a higher price, they are then turned into what we call bag holders. They just end up holding the bag while the other people run off with the profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially don't follow popular people who make such recommendations. One of the most infamous and rotten uh, individuals in this whole cryptosphere is uh, John McAfee, so the antivirus guy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he is absolutely and 100% unqualified to comment on any cryptocurrency whatsoever. He has been out of the tech space since the 90s and has no idea what he's talking about. And everything he recommends is purely because he has 500,000 followers and because any coin he recommends just shoots up in value immediately afterwards. He uses his followers as bump and dumpers. And it's very, very, very expensive to try and uh, kind of jump on his bandwagon. So don't do it. Don't listen to him. Um, so no FOMO. Don't don't panic buy. Don't panic sell. And um, the the third one was uh, I think I forgot what the third one was. Mm-hmm. I had wait a second. FUD FOMO and I'll, uh, I I might remember it later. I don't know. That's cool. But basically just just. They, like, oh yeah, uh, Dior. So do your own research. Um, just don't, don't, don't trust the marketing. Like jumping, avoiding, possibly missing one two hundred percent jump in price one day, could save you from a five hundred percent drop the day after. So just patience is still a virtue. It's, Stay, like, be careful, read white papers. If you don't understand understand what the white paper is saying, it is either badly worded and not a good investment, or you just can't understand technical stuff, in which case you should not feel shame in asking someone who does uh, mm-hmm. about their opinion. Um, because it's, it's, it's a very complex uh, like ecosystem. There are thousands of cryptocurrencies now, mm-hmm. thousands of... of uh, tokens, thousands of ideas, thousands of scams, and it's you should you should really be very very careful and um, like don't 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 feel confident uh, trading because oftentimes you'll just step into the traps that other wealthy people set. Um, a single person with a with an early batch of Bitcoin can move entire markets of weaker coins in in a second, and they often do. So they just like imagine if he had 10,000 bitcoins to him it means nothing to put 500 bitcoins into one coin just to pump its value and then sell it and he basically gets a return of 50% or so uh, which to him is 250 bitcoin on that amount mm-hmm. to, uh, and to you as an investor it can it can mean the loss of everything so um, don't 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 fall for recommendations. Be very careful. If a coin is being advertised on Facebook, it's likely a scam and so on and so forth. So just be very careful and, and do your own research. That's basically all the advice I have. Sounds excellent. Um, all right. Well, thanks for the, thanks for the chat. It's been, it's been very, very educational. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. It's been, it's been great to finally sort of get, um, all right. So what did you think about the fireside chat with Bruno? Do you feel that cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and all those good things are something that you want to be a part of, that you feel could be of value to you, that are a community that you'd like to be involved in? Do you think that in some way it could help you sort of build a more meaningful career by having experience in this domain? If so... I hope that you will check out the show notes where I've attempted to link as much as possible to all the information or as much of the information as possible that that Bruno gave me and that you heard in the show. If you want to ask anything more, if you want to tweet me, please do so any given time. 
I'm on Twitter at freeing the gig. I know it's a little bit different from free the gig, but at free the gig was taken. If you have any other sort of questions and so forth, check out the show notes, which you can find at freethegeek.fm forward slash episode forward slash episode hyphen zero zero three one. If you want to know anything more about the show, go to freethegeek.fm. And in two weeks' time, I'm going to have a wonderful, ragingly interesting chat with my old mate and we were almost work colleagues, Mr. Najaf Ali. And he talks about his experiences in going from being a freelancer to sort of growing that into a business and the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights, if you will, in a really honest, really sort of no-holes-barred way. So if you're thinking of going from a freelance from being a freelancer to running a business, definitely tune in for this episode. Really worth it. I'll see you in two weeks for episode 32.